everybody today's episode is brought to you by the raven cafe located at 142 north cortez street in historic downtown prescott arizona i love this place i eat there all the time and let me tell you why the raven cafe features a full all organic espresso bar and a wide variety of craft beers and wines their innovative menu is created with a focus on organic ingredients many of which come from local sources. So head on over there. Enjoy a relaxing and comfortable environment decorated with rotating art shows by local and regional visual artists. And on the weekends, a lineup of the best in up-and-coming local music. You don't want to miss out on the Raven Cafe. It's absolutely one of my favorite spots in town. So head on over to ravencafe.com and order online or stop by to catch a happy hour on their beautiful rooftop patio. To the Creative Convergence, an audible nexus of the creative arts. I'm your host, Candace Devine. Join me in conversation as we discuss the journey creatives take on their path to success. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. We have a really cool guest today coming to us through a Zoom call, and his name is Mr. Ed Mabry. Ed tours the country professionally as a poet, comedian, and motivational speaker. As an Emmy Award winner, Ed has been seen on seasons three and five of Verses and Flow. He has performed for over 100 colleges and universities around the country, teaching workshops and conducting seminars. On the comedy front, Ed is open for D.L. Hewley, Ann Bag, Rob Schneider, Roy Wood Jr., Charlie Murphy, and many more. Ed is also a two-time finalist in the World Series of Comedy. To learn more about Ed Mabry, be sure to check out our show notes to find links to performances and social media. Hi, Ed. Welcome to the show today. Thank you. <laughs> we are so thrilled you are here. Um, as you know, because I, I, you got the email, correct? As you know, yes. we, we want to talk about your life journey. I have been looking up so many amazing videos of you and enjoying them so immensely. You're so incredibly talented. So um, it's definitely our honor that you're here today. Can you start for me from the very beginning? Where was baby Ed born? Where were you raised? Who are your mom and dad? <laughs> uh, Freud one. Um... Yeah, uh, my name is Ed Mabry. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was raised in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, so I'm a Midwest boy at heart. I also spent maybe all my formative school years with Dayton, Ohio. Uh, probably another 15 years or so while I was in Columbus, Ohio. Um, but I've also lived in uh, Tucson, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and now Los Angeles, California. Wow, you've made tracks. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> and has poetry primarily been the reason that you've been bouncing around? Take me from little baby Ed in Ohio, and <laughs> and walk me through to the walk me through some of your younger years to high school, and let's figure out this journey. Or you share with us the journey of turning into the wonder that you are. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yeah, born in Cincinnati. Uh, my mom, dad, that uh, I think they split up not too long after I was born. Um, 
moved to Dayton where my mother's parents were. Uh, so that was all the early school years. That was Hickendale Elementary School, which no longer exists. In those years already, were you were you finding the arts in your life at that time as a little kid? Or were you just kind of like getting through your day? Um, <laughs> yeah, just trying to make it through the day. Um, <laughs> at, at like nine years old. I'm just trying to make it through the day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, Dayton was a bit dangerous at the time. Yeah. Uh, I grew up next door to one of the top 10 FBI most wanted for drug dealing and trafficking. Oh, uh, my gosh. But we thought that was something kind of cool to brag about back then. <laughs> that was like, my next door neighbor. Um, as far as art was concerned, I was into the arts a little bit. I was into uh, reading. I love reading anything mythology-based or astronomy-based. I yeah. loved. Um, so I read a lot. Uh, love mythology, love fiction, love collecting books, collecting stamps for a minute, I think. Um, then when hip-hop hit really hard, I was like, screw poetry. So much so that I forgot I ever liked it. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you couldn't be back then. And I mean, of course, the terminology has changed now and our minds has evolved, of course. Back then it was like, oh, poetry's for girls. Right. You know, or for sissies and all those dumb things you think, right? So you're like, oh, well, I don't want to be that. I want to be a manly man at, you know, eight years old, seven years old. So <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna listen to hip hop because I'm a manly man. Uh, so, yeah, like 10 years old, like screw poetry, strictly hip hop and rap. Uh, started tearing up my mother's stereo, ruining her needles, trying to scratch <laughs> records, uh, tearing up her old classics, uh, her whooping my ass for doing so. Um, yeah, and then so was she as, was back. she as enthusiastic about your love of <laughs> hip hop at the time? Was she Not like? Not at all. <laughs> She's like, Not you're kind of ruining all my records. Like, <laughs> yeah, what's going on? Well, here? She was really cool though. She was. Um, my mother was. Well, everybody thinks her mom was different, but. My mother was different in the aspect of she was very self-aware of where we grew up. And she was very aware that it was not the Dayton, Ohio that she grew up in. Um, of course, she grew up during the Jim Crow era portion and civil rights portion and definitely heavy racist portion. Uh, her mother was light-skinned enough. My, my maternal grandmother was light-skinned enough to be what they call white passing. Oh, wow. uh, so much so that her own husband was not allowed to walk with her down the street. Um, he had to walk a few steps in front or behind. So my mother grew up in that dynamic of being my complexion, or close to my right. complexion. So she also could not hold her mother's hand walking down the street uh, in certain parts of Dayton because they'd assume uh, maybe that she was, my grandmother would tell people that my, my grandma, my grandma would tell people that my mother was her help's daughter. Wow. Um, to best protect her. Right. right. Uh, as, I, as weird as I was back then. So my mom grew up in that era. And then going from that to like, of course, you have uh, then the heroin movement to marijuana and cocaine uh, just prior to the crack epidemic that hit. Uh, she saw how Dayton changed. And her big thing was I could do anything I wanted to do. Uh, but for every one thing I wanted to do, I had to do an art. So if I wanted to play football, I had to go watch her play. Um, if I wanted to. Uh, wow, that's incredible. Go, that's a gift. Sign up for basketball. Yeah, if I want to sign up for basketball, I had to go to the museum. Um, if I wanted to do rap, I had to go uh, watch um, theater or live uh, ballet um, music. I have and to tell you, Ed, and forgive me yeah. for interrupting because this no, no, no. is so compelling to me. But as a parent of a new young, I have a little one. I have to tell you, like, that's such a huge pearl of wisdom to me. You know what I mean? Because yeah. so often as parents, we're told in general 
like support your children. You know, they'll find the things they're interested in and, you know, expose mm. them to whatever you can and let the chips fall where they may. And mm. that's all fine, good and true. But I, I love that your mom had this worldview of mm -hmm. and foresight of like, you may have your interest and that is fine, but you are not going to be singular in a box. You are going to mm. be well-rounded and well-versed right. and well-educated in so many diverse avenues that you're you you're not i i believe people are unstoppable forces of nature when they are right. taking in all of these inspirations you know right so that i mean that's an incredible especially through the history you just walked us through for yeah. her to have this like big vision for you i think is, is so mm. incredible oh yeah yeah and it was it, it paid off in its own way i guess to answer come around and answer your question like um i remember when i first started winning poetry contest after I started doing open mics, but I first started doing poetry contest when I first started winning them and I call her like, yo, I just won one. And, uh, everything, just nothing impressed her. Right. And she was getting my last nerves. I'd be like, yo, I won <laughs> this thing. I won five bucks. She'd be like, that's cool. So anyway, look, I was like, okay, I won this other thing. She's like, that's great. Anyway, you hear about so-and-so? I'm like, the hell does it take to please you? Uh, and then one time I was uh, at her house visiting and I made some comment. I was like, why, when I tell you about these things I accomplished, are you very nonplussed about it? Yeah. Like you're going to give me a complex. Like I'm a grown man. Which yeah. you're give me a <laughs> and she went and she pulled out uh, a footlocker and she pulled out speech contests, uh, poetry contests from like third, fourth, fifth grade uh, where I scored well or I won or got second place and speech contests and things like that. And she's like, it's just, it's not that I'm not impressed. She said, is that I'm keeping my mouth shut because you're simply coming full circle to who you are. Like you were into poetry as a kid. Yeah. And my mother was not into poetry. Yeah. So that's one of the few things, that's one of the few art forms that I picked up on that she could care less about. She was not into standing in front of a stage and talking to anybody. She wasn't even into writing poetry. Yeah. Um, so of all the things she exposed me to, that was the one that I selected and gravitated towards. And then when hip hop came along, I put it aside. But she's like, now she's getting older, you're just kind of coming back to that person again. Yeah. 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 So it's coming full circle. She's like, so it's it's impressive what you're doing, but the fact you're doing it alone is not impressive. Yeah. 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 She's so, like, it's uh, you're 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 walking the walk you created for yourself. Like it's kind of like, yeah. I mean, I'm proud of you, but you're just doing what you're meant to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been um that's been interesting. Some of you have the high school years, and that of course that's that's the will you be my girlfriend check one box yes or no kind of poetry crap. <laughs> <laughs> then you have uh, I left for the military. I was so young. My mother had to sign me in. Uh, let other people do that anymore. Uh, may uh, I ask, was that something you were gung ho to do? Was that a choice? No, for... no. I was a freaking idiot. Um, I was what they considered a gifted student uh, in a place where they did not have programs for gifted students. Wow. So, um, yeah, Dayton Public Schools, and I'm glad to say this on the podcast they public school sucks but to this very day uh if you have yeah. a child there get them out of that school <laughs> um yeah but it was just really bad and uh they actually were going they actually miss tried to misdiagnose me um i was going to get tested because i was very restless and i wouldn't pay attention in class things like that which and is typical that. for genius children i mean and yeah, i mean and that they, very yeah. sincerely it's like no, no, you. you're no. like yeah. you know keep up to my pace i don't need to keep up right. to your pace yeah, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't ADHD. Of course, they didn't even call it that back then. But it wasn't any of those things. 
is that I was finishing my work extremely fast and then I was bored and had nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, fortunately, a lady who was the church, I'm sorry, the school, the school nurse and the school secretary went to our church and they contacted my mother and they said, demand that he be tested and receive the following test or they're gonna put him in special education. And back at that time, special ed was um, for a variety of, of handicapable people, but also a lot of times if you were problematic, they just put you there. Interesting. And yeah. that's just where you stayed and you stayed in that system. So you, you were just out, out of everybody system. else's hair, but they right. were just gonna throw you over here and just not look the other, you know, look the other way. Right, right. And it wasn't any place to learn, it was a place to be babysat during right. the day. So um, my mother demanded I get these other tests, I took them, apparently I did very well. And they're like, oh, we actually need to skip him a few years. Uh, so he can be in a class that he's, you know, being at his level. By. Yeah. Right. So fast forward to that, I, I ended up graduating uh, earlier. So I graduated 15, turning 16. Um, but by then, I've developed some really poor study habits. Uh, I was very anti because um, most of the classes I were taking were not honors based accelerated classes. You still had to take what you had to take. Right. Um, so I developed a poor attitude as well. I'll skip class Monday through Thursday. I'll show up on Friday. I'll pass the test. I'll get an A and then I'll graduate. Yeah, you figured and out how to lean on your brilliance and not have to sit there and work through it because you're like, eh. Yeah. Like, you know, but no one, no one tells you the math of, you know, four F's and one A does not right. equal an A. <laughs> Details, minor. Yeah. Yeah. So those, those, those Monday through Thursday F's and that Friday A, you're, you're impressing nobody. Yeah. Um, so I was that kid. You thought you're cool, you thought you're smart. Uh, combined with the the hood. Projects there, I grew up in, in that attitude I had at the time. Um, so that equaled, uh, I had a girlfriend who was one year behind me in school. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, so I was, once she's one year behind me, and she's like, Oh, I don't want you to leave with me and go to school because you're going to find another girl, you're going to fall in love, you're going to forget about me. Right. Oh, no, baby, I love you. And she's like, Great. And I told my mom, I'm waiting a year, we'll leave at the same time. My mom said, You're a freaking idiot. Um, She's going to drop you like a bad habit. Like, no, she won't. We're in love. <laughs> and sure enough, the very next year, you know, because that, that whole year now, I can't go to the school because you're weird. You, you, know, you graduate, you can't go back to high school. Um, she said, well, I want to go to the dance. I can't go to the dance. So I'll take this other guy. Great. She said, oh, I think I want to be with him. And I'm like, no. I waited. Um, yeah. Then I start calling the schools like, hey, I'm ready to come there. And they're like, that's not how any of this works. Yeah. You know, all the scholarships are gone. The grants are gone. Classes started. Um, so I blew the couple rides I had. And my mom's like, hey, so here's our financial situation. Here's where we're living, where, where we're growing up at. I just don't have it for you. And I just thought, oh yeah, everyone else went to school. They would just, you take these papers to your parents, they fill the papers out, you can go to college. And that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. And I gave her the papers and she's like, like I filed a bankruptcy, so I can't do that. Um, so like, well, there's no other option. The military came knocking, like, hey, we'll still take it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so jump that. So that became uh, eight years in the Navy. Um, sign up for the Navy for eight years because uh, they're like, yeah, we'll gladly take you and I'll get out and I'll, I don't know what I was doing at the time. I was going to go to school and be like an air traffic controller or yeah. a pilot or some some stupid Tom Cruise thing in my head. <laughs> um, I'll fly fighter jets like Top Gun. <laughs> like, no, you're six foot and you're 250 pounds. You can't even fit in the fighter jet. Uh, but you can go over here and clean some stuff. You know? yeah. um, <laughs> wait. <laughs> yeah. Wait. Yeah, so I did that. What's funny is poetry actually helped me through that time frame because um, I would not write letters home to save my life. I don't. My mother did a little too good of a job making me very independent. 
So I'm a third generation only child. Yeah. And I was very independent. So once I left, I was like, I'm gone. Right. I won't write you. I'll just see you when like like I'll see you at Christmas. You in eight weeks. I'll see you in sixteen weeks, and I'll see you in a year. Um, but this yeah. writing stuff is for the birds. Like there's nothing to talk about. Every day sucks. What is what you want now? Um, but then guys would hit me up, and they'd be like, you know, hey man, uh, heard you do poetry. And I was like, wow, would you write my girl something? Like, sure, for five bucks. You know, I'll write your girl a poem. Yeah. You know, give me your name and give me your favorite color and you know something that you only <laughs> you know about her and. You know, like, oh, I miss you so crazy. Remember that time we sat and watched Driving This Daisy? It just this whatever <laughs> horrible poetry I was writing at the time. It was just really bad, you know. I love um, it, but you were smart. You're you... like, this is a business, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did it. I did it for one guy. I did it for my bunkmate for free. His name was Stokes. And he said, well, you send my girl something, uh, I screwed up. I was like, okay, sure. I just wrote this poem. And then... Whatever it was, work. <laughs> the magic came through. I want to marry you, you know, to boot camp. So, um, yeah. And then what happened was somebody copied his poem and sent it to their girl. So I found out they were, like, copying my poem. Oh. And I was like, no, I wrote it for him. And they're like, well, here, write one for me because it doesn't work. You You're going to have to put Maybe. copyright laws on the bottom of your poetry. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I started doing that. And then I was charging for that. It was dumb. So somewhere out there, some people, some really, really bad poetry. <laughs> Uh, and they're probably like, I could sell this on eBay now and be right. like, this is the original <laughs> works. <laughs> yeah, so I did that. Uh, so it was funny how it kind of followed me in that that element. Um, I, I wrote poetry uh, for other people, girls, and like uh, holiday stuff. I ended up actually doing it for some of the COs. Like my CO, my ACO and my CO both came to me. I thought I was in trouble. And then I want you to go in this office and you stay in there. And I was like, ah, oh, crap. And I go in, I sit in the office and they come in and uh, one of my seals, look, I didn't make it home last night. I need you to, her name's Karen. Just say something really sweet. I was like, what? He's like, do it. And I'm not paying you because I'm your CO. So you do it for your crap detail for a week. And I was like, oh, all right. Yeah, you were thinking, uh, and meanwhile, I'd be like, I thought this would give me some ranking stepping up. You know, like, right. yeah, how about you no, promote was, me and I'll save your relationship? Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it was interesting. Yeah, so poetry actually followed me through that time frame. Looking back on I didn't even like think about that. Um, At that time, were you writing anything for yourself? I mean, I would, I'm speaking for you, but I would imagine yeah. those, did you say eight years? Yes, yes. I mean, were they on some, I mean, was that, were they fulfilling you on some level? Were you writing to get through those eight years? Was there any of your poetry blooming under the surface for yourself? Like, opposed to writing, you know, cheesy love letters of sorts, you right. know, but that I'm sure were amazing um, still, but. Oh no, they were horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the time, not really. No, I was not. Uh, I wasn't reading poetry, um, and I wasn't even doing it so much for therapy. It was just killing time. Wow. Like I, w- I would love to have a deeper answer, but it was literally just killing time. I was not reading during that time frame while I was in the service. I was not reading any poetry books. Well, I might I read actually, anything else, but I was not reading poetry books. I actually think that's a really interesting point, and that's why I asked you to kind of uh, clarify, only because. You know, a lot of people listening are on their own artistic journeys. And I think right. sometimes people have this feeling like you either had to be born with it or be doing it since you were 10. And, and I don't think people often discuss that there are chapters in life where you're like, no, I, this wasn't my thing. Like it wasn't. Right. Oh, yeah. All of these other things in life have shaped the poet and the person I've become. Right. You know, so I actually like hearing that you're like, no, at that time, that was not my primary. Yeah, I, don't, I don't even fully trust those people. Be honest, those ones that are like, I was born writing poetry, I yeah, 
probably don't like you. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just yeah, I just I just I don't like your dress. I don't know why. Yeah. It's, it's the cynic in me. Like, nah, I call uh, I call yes man. Um yeah, plus I mean we, we do oftentimes forget uh that what inspires us to write is life. Uh so the more life, the more of a life you live. Uh, we have to do one of two things. Either you're extremely introverted, in, in my opinion, either extremely introverted and you create an extremely graphic and detailed world in your head and you just live in your head. Like oh. though, I know people I know people that do write because they're writing everything that's in their world in their head out onto paper. So they have to get it out or they'll go crazy because right. there's so many things going on, so many stories. Then there's other people who like sit on a park bench and just watch life pass by. And then they write based upon uh, kind of a, a weird voyeurism. Yeah. They just watch uh, borrow or appropriate yeah. everyone's life and live vicariously to others. Then there's those of us who actually live life. And then uh, we reflect back and go, oh, I didn't realize how important that was. Like saying, like, like writing the poems in boot camp. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, wow, I really need to probably think more about that and probably write a whole series about just yeah. that. Like I can't find them. But maybe just kind of recreate like, everything I can remember about those moments, yeah. right? About everything I remembered about being in the Navy and to see what happens with that. Um, yeah, so you have these chunks where you live and then chunks where you create, chunks where you live, chunks where you create. The truly productive of us, those of us that are very productive, I believe have found the perfect balance to where you can't see the two. Uh, I think Stephen King uh, is, has been a good example over the course of his career of. He lives and produces. Yeah. Right. He produces work at a certain clip, but also lives his life simultaneously. Um, and then there are poets that I think do the same. Patricia Smith is one for example of someone who's lived the full life and then she produces um, where some of us are obviously sometimes some of us live for extended periods of time, maybe shut down for a year, just hammer right. something. And just out, go. Okay. You know, and then we feel drained and we go back again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the really productive people have kind of found that balance to where they can live and produce simultaneously, which is why I think most of us are yearning for that good balance of uh, of that of that. Um, yes, yeah, so I was high school. I was high school. I was military. Um, oh God, I, I left for the Globe again for an extended period of time. Um, in America, there was a movie. Uh, in Black America, it hit very differently culturally than 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 overall, but it still hit called Love Jones. Um, that was partially written and inspired by a poet. Um, and while the movie had nothing to do with poetry, the fact that it had poetry in it, um, there was a movement happening at the time. Poetry scenes were becoming very hip. Um, Neil, this Neil Soul movement, which was kind of a, a reinvigorating of R&B, yeah. had hit nationally. Um, you had a, a black consciousness was hitting and was and was not being immediately shot down by a white America. So you had um, Soul to Soul. You had uh, uh, Jeanne, you had all these groups that were singing kind of uh, sounds of joy, that were singing a very uplifting, positive message uh, for Black people that were being mainstream played. Yeah. Right? Because that's it, it only it only becomes a cultural phenomenon if it when hits, it leaves, yeah. right, when his mainstream has to leave Black America and go to right. America in general, then it becomes a cultural phenomenon. So all of a sudden, poetry events became the thing to do. Uh, Jill Scott and Erica Badu Absolutely. Uh, both dropped their first album. And we didn't, you don't realize that at the time that you're in, in the midst of a renaissance or the midst of a movement, doing it. You're like, oh, wow, all this music is awesome. You don't realize, like, two years ago it was totally not happening. Right. Um, and then same thing, all these people at poetry shows look like, where in the hell all these people start coming from? Right. Like, why are they, why, why are they interrupting our perfectly calm and quiet show? <laughs> you know, there's coffee and tea and we kind of say some cool stuff and we snap our fingers it, and that's that. 
Now it's this whole other generation. Uh, Poet Slam hit. The movie Slam and the documentary hit. Yeah. Uh, with Saul Williams in it. And then that changed things. And now you had this aggressive and loud. And heavier. Um, you had heavier intention and not holding yeah. back. Um, and they called it street and urban. But what it was, was you had people with, like Saul Williams and Bosey and, and other group of people. You had people with MFAs. Yeah. Right? MFAs in theater, MFAs in English, MFAs in creative writing, who still held on to their particular roots from where they lived in New York or Los Angeles or Oakland and right. all these cities. So you had them combining their uh, kind of what praise for Hamilton. The same idea applied to poetry and poetry slam at that time was you have yes. people with uh, a deep understanding and a foundation, but also willingness to discuss things from a, a what they consider an urban uh, perspective but just a black perspective or their perspective. Like not everybody was black, but right. also Latino involved in it. Uh, Asian was involved in it, things like that. But speak from a minority based perspective um, from a street culture and from an educated culture. Uh, so that phenomenon hit. And I was like anybody else. I literally lived yeah. a block away from a poetry show. So at this point, are you still in Ohio or had you moved? I'm in Ohio. Okay. I'm, I'm in Ohio. I left with the military and come back. So I've left Dayton, went to become a man, whatever. And I, I'm in, I'm in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I'm sorry, I live in Tucson. <laughs> uh, and that's where my son was conceived. And then I moved to Columbus. Okay, so wait. <laughs> okay, so wait. <laughs> so when did <laughs> you? I love, I love your, I love your whole vibe, Ed. I love everything about you. You're like, I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna tell you the story. I'm gonna let you get some history that you need. And also, I'm gonna go to a city, leave a city, and then pick up somewhere <laughs> in another city. I'm like, wait a minute, child, Tucson. Let's yeah. back up for just a second. Um, at what point were you in Tucson and? From where we're going on this journey, as far as being back in Ohio and finding this beautiful mm-hmm. cultural scene emerging and hitting the mainstream, yeah, uh, did Dayton, a child has I been born. The Navy, I came back. Not all my eight years <laughs> was active part of was a uh, reserve, um, and I had a very cynical mindset. Um, drug culture was huge in Dayton at the time. The crack epidemic was very major. Wow. Uh, I was working whatever work a burger. King. I was working at a burger. Um, and pretty much just everybody I grew up with was either military, prison, or or uh, drug culture. And that that's an interesting mix of people because you've got this like mm-hmm. core dynamic mm-hmm. of how did you how did that work for you living back in civilian life, but having this like militant, you know, time dealing mm-hmm. with jail. You said it was military, jail, and drug culture. Right. Two, no, those, those are the three things you're looking at. So everybody yeah. I grew up with was either leaving to go to the military or they were selling drugs or they had attempted to do something or going to jail uh, or they were dead. Um, um, yeah, I would say of the, the there's maybe 15 of us, 18 of us that hung out as kids from junior high to high school. Uh, one of my years in high school before I left for the Navy, uh, so many of my friends were murdered when crack first moved into the Midwest, that mother would not allow me to go to funerals anymore. I wasn't allowed to go after a while because she was afraid of what it was going to do to me because I'd become very numb to the process of friends dying. Yeah. Um, so that was before the Navy. Then I come back and things have settled in. So the few people I didn't know who survived have done a bit in jail. They've done four years, five years. They came back home and they're back on the street. Um, some of my friends' parents you know, I would go to try to find my friends and uh, their parents are on the street. 
Um, I remember a girl I had a huge crush on, uh, driving and seeing her on the street. I had a high school crush on her. I see her walking down the street. And I'm like, oh my God, it's her. You know, this is my shot. I'm back from the Navy. I'll impress her. And we talked for a moment. And I was like, you know, if you need to go anywhere, I can gladly give you a ride. You don't have to walk. And she said, no, I'm kind of going to stay here. And partly through the conversation, I realized she's addicted to drugs and she's working that block. Um, so that was a hell of a re- revelation, yeah. right? Like last time I saw you, we were leaving high school. And yeah. now I see you and you're, you know, you're, you're hearing this. Yeah. Um, so that was very eye-opening. Uh, so my best friend at the time, name was Jerry Humphreys. He was white cat. He was uh, getting married to Molly Dodge. Of course, like that's just like you can't get much cuter and whiter <laughs> than that. Jerry's marrying Molly. Um, it's like yellow and daisies and yeah, just like <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I mean, I love them both to death. They're great people. Uh, no, he was it's my just, best friend at the time, totally. and they were getting married, and they had never neither one of them had ever been outside of Dayton, Ohio, uh, but wasn't for a family trip. And they both took jobs in Tucson, Arizona. Oh, um, okay. And the deal was they said, well, hey, why don't you, to get you out of this environment and get your head clear, uh, why don't you help us drive? Okay. Help us drive out to Tucson with the U-Haul. I said, cool. I'm not doing anything else worthwhile. Um, so drove out there with them, hung out there, uh, kind of fell in love with it. Kind of fell in love with Tucson, the atmosphere, how laid back it was. Uh, apparently, I love 140,000 degree <laughs> temperatures. <laughs> Let's dry heat. I, I, that's okay. Now, now you lost me. We're not connecting yeah. on that level. <laughs> yeah, apparently, apparently, because because they moved there in the summer, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm good with this. <laughs> yeah, this isn't bad, you know. Uh, but it was mountains. They had a place in the foothills of the Catalinas in Tucson. It was great. Um, I enjoyed it. And by the time it came time to go, I didn't want to go. And uh, I said, well, I'll I'll spend some money. I'll get a little part time job. And within two weeks, I had two jobs. I took my first paycheck from each one. Uh, I just went down the street from apartment complex to apartment complex. It was like, here I have two checks. Is this enough? You know, next place. Here I have two checks. And the third place is like, sure. You know, you have, I pull out my military ID. Like, oh, you get a discount. Great. I uh, signed <laughs> out of line and got an apartment. Um, and by the time my birthday rolled around, my mother was like, are you coming home for your birthday? And I was like, you know what? No, I think if you want to see me, you have to come out here. I think this is home for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. So did that. Met a woman. Uh, warning signs <laughs> <laughs> that you realize as you get older. Everybody that watches or listen to this later, coincidences don't always mean a good thing. Um, <laughs> so I meet uh, my son's mom at a concert. I'm back to rapping, also, by the way. So screw poetry. I'm in an actual rap group. I'm in a hip-hop rap group. And what, we was your, are, what was your rap group called? Uh, Eminent Domain. Oh, Domain. all right. Yeah. Uh, they were all black kids who grew up in Arizona, so they had a very different mindset than I did. We'll leave it at that. So I would not own eminent domain. But our <laughs> our, slot, our uh, model was uh, get your eye. Where's your ID? And we're gonna have dog tags with eminent domain in our names on them. So you know, where's your ID? It was it was really stupid, uh, but we meant well. Um, apparently, we did well. Actually, well enough. We were going to meet uh, Russell Simmons. Wow. Was doing. He had just opened his Def Jam West Coast. Uh, part of his label right. I just started and he had like six artists on that and this is when Onyx was big uh, ironically oh. enough and again you don't think about it but Onyx is singing Slam and yeah. I think I, you know I'm going to be in Post Slam at the time I think about poetry it's just very ironic yeah. so Onyx is big uh, Lady Slam. Rain Afro Pulse yeah, yeah exactly so they're touring and Russell is touring with them personally and someone got it set up where we open up for his West Coast 
tour, and they're going to hear us in Tucson. Uh, University of Arizona basketball team is going to the Final Four. Wow, this is Phoenix Suns. They're doing well. So yeah, like like Arizona's on on the map. Arizona like was, in a long was time. In... and we're going to meet them and we go to the concert. And we're going to open up. Yeah, it was jumping off, and uh, some Crips and Bloods were there, and someone. Uh, on a, in a wheelchair, pulled out a double barrel shotgun and murdered somebody else. So, end of the night. Uh, what? Yeah, no. I uh, we ran out back, and I was so upset about what happened. I had my demo tape, and they're rushing Russell Simmons and some of the people into limos and cars to get away. And their window was down, and I throw the demo tape to try to get into a car, and it flies to the window and it catches him in the head. Um, <laughs> and in my mind, I think it actually cut. His eyebrow, like it cut him <laughs> and he bled. But I know it hit him in the head because he cussed at me and he went to throw it back out and the car pulled off. Um, and that was as close as we got. That was our moment of we were about to be the next thing to get signed. Um, <sighs> so after everything's over, all the locals are kind of standing around after the police have come and left. And there was a group of girls. And it was this weird combination because there was the four of us. Mike was uh, Latino and Black. Eric and Malik were, were brothers, older brother, younger brother, and they were like, I think Ethiopian and black, and me. And the mix of the these four girls standing there was like the perfect like TV show. They were made to be our dates for the night. And so I talked to the one I talked to, and she's from Columbus, Ohio, um, which I had never been to. We considered that the big city. You're going big time. Right. So that was the irony of Columbus, Ohio. Um, so we talked, and we're both homesick. And we both kind of connected over the fact that we were both homesick. Um, and that's what we had in common. We had in common that we hated being in Tucson. We missed all things about Ohio and how nobody understood us because we were, you know, on another level and all this other dumb stuff to tell yourself in your 20s or early 20s. Um, yeah, so one thing led to another. We dated. We fell in love. Uh, we lost our first child. And then uh, a little bit long after that, we broke up. And she was pregnant again. Uh, my son was a twin. We lost a twin. Uh, my son survived. He made it, of course, full time. And now he's you know, in his 20s. Uh, he's married, matter of fact. Um, yeah, so all that happened. Uh, but prior to that, she had an uncle who was murdered in Ohio. So she went back for the funeral while she was still pregnant um, and then decided she wasn't coming back to Arizona. She said, I'm staying in Ohio. My mom is here. My sister's here. All my family's here. I'm staying here. I mean, cool. You know, by this point, I'm thinking I'm working at a Bed Bath & Beyond. Back when there was three of them. <laughs> um, so I'm like on a management, like a yeah. regional, like a district manager training program, pipeline thing. And I was like, cool, no problem. Money's good. Life is good. I have, I'm in a good relationship. Uh, when you're ready to have them, let me know. I'll fly in, watch the birth, sign the birth certificate stick around for like another week. I'll come back here. We'll do all the paperwork, you know, try to handle it like an adult. And she decided that was not how she wanted to handle it at all. Uh, I couldn't reach her until maybe a week and a half before my son was born. The 7-Eleven the Circle K. Circle K. Circle K had a payphone, And the guy who worked the late shift would let me know if someone had called for me. Because um, that was my phone was the payphone. Anybody listening to this is going to think I'm making that up. <laughs> like payphones aren't real. I know. Um, they're the payphones they're, were very real. Yeah, they were uh, a real thing at one time. You would literally yeah, and you could receive calls on them. <laughs> so uh, 
yeah, someone called, a friend of hers called and said, if you ever want to see your son, you can't stay in Arizona. You have to move to Ohio or you'll never find him. Um, I fell for the bluff. I didn't know anything about the government and agencies and support systems, so I fell for it. I sold everything that I couldn't put on a Greyhound bus, and I moved from Arizona to Columbus. Uh, yeah, and that's how I ended up in Columbus. So that was my start. That's how I got to Columbus. That yeah. gap you're referring to. That's how I ended up there. Um, then I was in Columbus for 14, 15 years, I'm sorry. And then lo and behold, they moved. She moved him back to Tucson. I was like, I'm not going back to Tucson because <laughs> I realized how much Tucson sucked. Because uh, Tucson sucked. Tucson is just not built for black people. I don't care who says it. Tucson belongs to Tucsonians. Uh, if it's a place I don't believe I should live anywhere, that you, you, they shut down school for rodeo week. I was leaving at that. They literally shut down all schools for rodeo week. I respect rodeos to everyone who listens to this. But I do not believe I should live in any city that shuts down for rodeo. I'm not a rodeo kind of guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was Columbus. So then, uh, yeah, then um, was working a job. I literally lived a block away from an open mic. I would walk to the Hyatt on Capitol Square in Columbus, Ohio. I was the overnight hotel supervisor. I would walk past as everyone's heading out to the parking lot. And I just kept noticing the camaraderie and the laughter and how much fun everybody was having. I said, what are they doing in this tiny little, it was a four wall little, uh, it, was, it wasn't much bigger than a, a, a nice size, like a two car garage uh, and next to a parking lot. And I was like, what's going on in there? And I see these flyers stapled to telephone poles and the open mic poetry night. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I saw Love Jones. It's gotta be like Love Jones. I want to go see that. Um, and I could for a whole year, I couldn't do it. Uh, the irony of that is, again, just because I like make fun of myself, I had been dating a woman and we had split up. Her name was Kim. And she went to the poetry show that first 12 months. It was called the Poets Cafe. Then there was a change in pecking order, poetry, like a certain group of poets left and another group of poets came in and it was being called the Poets Cafe to being called Snaps and Taps. So that was the first month they had it. That was the first month I made it there. And her and her crew had just stopped going the month before. So she had been literally a block away, like my love of my life, my ex-fiance, had been a block away from my house every week for 52 weeks. And I never knew it. And then when she quit going, I showed up and started going. Um, yeah, and that was open mics. Uh, and I actually went for therapy. I went for free therapy. I was really heartbroken. I thought we were going to get married. I was crushed. Uh, I said, I'm going to write a really, really crappy poem and make everybody listen to it so they'll be as sad as me. <laughs> and then that'll make me feel better because everyone else will be sad. So that's how it works. I won't be alone in my in my pain. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's how therapy works. Everyone else is miserable. I feel good. So uh, I typed up a poem on a brother typewriter uh, with a red ribbon. I remember that specifically. It was a red ribbon uh, because I literally held the pages up and you could see through them a little dark, cool poetry spot. Uh, all blacked out, like they painted the walls black, they had black chairs, black carpet, black stage, black tables, everything on that side of it. The other side was bright and beautiful with the performance I was like a black box theater. Yeah. And uh, I held it up so you could see it in the light. I said, this red on this paper represents the blood I shed for our relationship. <laughs> and these marks you see are real tears. I cried when I was typing this up. It was just horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> uh, it was also very long. It took me a month to read the whole poem. Um, I would read it every week until the whole set stopped. I would just go, and eventually he's like, "Stop next," and then I would just <laughs> wait. There, they, you can do that. You can just cut somebody at off the time, <laughs> at the time. At the time, they should do it nowadays. They yeah. should do it more now. Uh, they should do it more now. Um, but yeah, then he would say, "Stop next," 
And then uh, what I do you do? Do you just stand there and go, uh, okay? Oh no, I knew. Like I, I, I was horrible. I was sobbing, crying. <laughs> yeah, it was just really bad. It was snot, and tears, and blood, and parts. He's everywhere. like next. Um, <laughs> and then the final week, I got a standing ovation. Yeah, because uh, and not because it was so good, but because I announced it was part four of four. I was like, this is part four of four. And everybody's like, yes. That means he's done. I'm you know, never first, coming again. My first standing ovation was merely because I finished. Right, right. Because I said, I said I'm done. Because I'm done. And I was done. And I didn't care. I said, screw these people. I'm never coming back again. I got it out of my system. I made a total fool of myself. It's like, I'm never going back. And uh, they normally equate the phenomenon with church. If you're raised in a church environment as you get older, you'll find yourself thinking about church the closer you move to your particular Sabbath day. So for like, I was a Baptist on Sunday. So when I quit going, when I had, when I could choose to go or not, I was like, I'm not going today. I'd find myself thinking about it more the closer I got to that Sunday. And then I'm kind of going out of default, right? Muscle memory. The same thing as I started moving towards that next uh, poetry time. I was like, I'm not going. I made a fool of myself. That was Monday. Tuesday, there's no way in hell I'm going. I embarrassed myself for a whole month. I'm never walking in there again. Uh, Wednesday morning, I'm still not going. By Wednesday afternoon, I'm home from work and I'm typing another, I'm typing away at home on my typewriter to walk down the street Wednesday evening, you know, and go to the, the open mic. Um, fortunately for me, there was a group of elders in that community and there was an actual community, like those were, those people interacted during the poetry show and during the rest of the week. They were really nice people. And they were very happy to see me. And they said, hey, we think there's something in you. Now that you got that crap out of the way, maybe you can actually do something with your skill, like your talent. And this uh, lady in Shongafemi handed me a book and said, read this. Don't do any poems, write any poems. So you read it front to back. That was called the Black Poets Anthology. Uh, it was a paperback book. And I was like, whatever, you're not my mom. I'm not reading this crap. You know, I'll take the book and throw it in the corner when I get home. And I found myself taking that book with me everywhere I went on the bus when I went to work, was at the bus to work. I'd read going and coming. I'd sneak and read it at my desk at work, uh, bathroom, shower, sitting up. Just I couldn't put it down. Um, and yeah, I, I would show up to the open mic and go to sign up, and she'd scratch my name out and say, Nope, read the book. Just keep just keep reading that book. You'll know when it's time to write wow. when you when you feel compelled to write, not just compelled to show up right. and write. Um, like you just want to do because you're doing it. But I have, to tell, you, I have huh? to tell you, that's really interesting too, because it's, I completely, I love that idea of like, you'll know when it's right, show up when it's right. But I also have to commend you because so many people right. quit showing up. You know what I mean? When it comes to the arts. So often people go, oh, oh yeah. I made a fool of myself or, oh, I, but, and there's that little voice inside of them still saying, you know, come on, go, come on. And they just push it aside because when they do show up and somebody goes, no, you're not ready yet. They go, I guess I failed. I guess it's time to quit now. You know, so right. the fact that you had that like, nah, I'll just go back again and I'll keep reading and I'll just go back again. I mean, that speaks a lot to, you know, who you are and, and this piece of you that keeps bubbling up you know yeah yeah and, and so wasn't paying attention to it then either uh you know it clicked eventually i i finally showed up one day and she's like you know you want to read today and i'm like i didn't bring anything today except this stupid book and she's like great read from the book and i enjoyed how that felt the interpretation of, of their words uh out of my mouth 
uh, that's been bouncing around in my head. Um, I started making friends at the poetry show. Um, and we, our friendship was always based upon the work. So everybody wrote poems. Uh, we weren't doing any slams at the time. We didn't know a slam existed. Uh, you wrote a poem, you read a poem. Then if, if Raven does a poem and it's ever gets more applause or or just has something I like, I'm like, wow, that's better than my poem. Like, I like that poem. I'm going to come back next week with a better poem. Uh, but they're not in contention to each other. It's in connection with Yeah, them. you're feeding each other's fires. Right. And yeah, contributing. Kind of, you know, yeah, still sharp yeah. and still. So uh, we kept doing that without realizing we were kind of forming this budding rivalry of about six, seven of us. Um, so then when someone came back and they said, hey, there's this thing called a poetry contest. We should try it. And I lost for a year straight. Uh, I could not win to save my life with most people who know my current record don't believe, but I couldn't buy a win. I couldn't bribe my way to win. I was so not good at it. <laughs> um, they gave a first, second, and third place. The guy who owned the spot. First place was uh, five bucks. Second place was a free drink, which was coffee or tea. Uh, third place was free admission the next week. <laughs> I got third place so many times he would put my name on the envelope before the contest. <laughs> You're all, <And> I would, <laughs> come on. I'm still, I'm still like aiming for first. Like don't write yeah, me I was, I, was, oh, I was just so pissed off. <laughs> I'm like, how dare you? I'm going to kill it tonight. Watch I'm winning tonight. Yeah. And he would come up to me and hand me the envelope. Like you want it now? You want it later? Like, Screw you, Todd. Watch. I'm going to win. You're going to see. You're all going to see. And I don't care what I did. I could have set myself on fire and turned water into wine. And literally, they'd be like, and in third place. And everybody <laughs> would just say, eh. And I'd be like, nah, not this time. And they'd be like, yeah, dude, you got third. I'm like, oh, are you serious? Yeah. Um, and then yeah, it happened for a whole year, for an entire year. It didn't matter what I wrote, what I did. I could not get past it. Um, and then I won an event. And then I, uh, in turn, did not lose any contest I entered. That was a poetry contest for a year and a half after that. Wow. It didn't matter where it was, when it was, in town, out of town. I signed up. I won it. Um, and then things kind of just kept, uh, yeah, growing and elevating from there. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Peregrine Book Company, located at 219 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. This beautiful boutique bookstore is in need of your business and support like all small businesses through this challenging time. Please head over to peregrinebookcompany.com to browse and purchase books online. While you're on their website, sign up for their weekly newsletter so you can get updates on their reopening plans. If the book says on our shelves now, you can actually pick it up the next business day, or you can call 928-445-9000 and a bookseller will help you. Remember, peregrinebookcompany.com or 928-445-9000. When did you look at this interest of yours as this is going to be my career now? Mm. That was an accident on purpose. Uh, I got married. Yay, finally thought I did it right. <laughs> um, and we both worked for the same company. We both worked for a credit card company, uh, First USA at the time, which became Bank Owns Now Chase. Uh, different floors, and everything was great. We were happy. She was awesome. I was awesome. Life was great. 
uh, get off around the same time, drive cars, go home around the same time. Great and awesome. And then I had done some poetry slams, and I went to a, a national event every year in the office. And that started picking up steam in terms of if you did well at that event, there were literally people from teams from all over the country. So they would go, you know, Raven, I'd like to have you in my town. What is it going to take to get you to Salt Lake City? Yeah, they have you in St. Paul, like they have you in San Francisco, like they have you in Boise. Um, and I put my name out there. How many was Ed? I'd love to come to your town. And I got within, I think, two weeks. Within two days, I had two shows. Within a week, I had six months worth of shows. Within two weeks, I had a year's worth of shows booked wow. out. So I sat down with my wife at the time, had a talk, like, look, I know you're very much a concrete money, only day jobs, you know, what made sense at the time, only real work matters. Um, I said, but if I can match 80% of my gross, can I take a year leave from work and just do this? Yeah. See what happens. She's like, you have to match 80%. I matched 90%. Amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, based upon that. And then that's when some issues happened because she kept changing the rules. It was, <laughs> I know I said you can come home. You don't have to come home but once a week. Instead, I want you home every four days. Then it was, I want you home anytime. If you're an eight-hour driver or less from home, I want you home. Uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, it is one of the most geographical, uh, centralized places in the country. It is an eight-hour flight from 90%. I'm sorry, it's an eight-hour drive from... from like 70% of the country, oh my God. some crazy number. Like it's an eight-hour drive. Columbus to Chicago, six hours. Columbus to New York is eight. Right. Columbus so, to Atlanta is eight. So you're like, almost you don't care about state lines anymore. You just want me driving from anywhere USA home because it's within eight hours. I remember I did a show <laughs> in, I left Columbus at a show in Cleveland. Left Cleveland went back to Columbus. The, the next morning I left Columbus, did a show in New York left New York, drove back to Columbus that same night uh, to be with her the next day to have to be in New York the following night. That's crazy, Dale. Uh So, anyway, <laughs> yeah, so the money starts coming in from the shows. Uh, she decides it's not the life for her. Uh, after we agreed on everything, she literally leaves while I'm on my first tour. Uh, so I'm on my first tour, and she packs everything that's hers in the house takes it disappears um, and i don't know because i'm on the road so she had this all planned out uh, yeah so that was fun uh, <laughs> you're all yeah great times <laughs> yeah so that equal of course stopping getting a regular job again for a moment to try to you know wow. uh, recoup financially what was happening things like at that. at this point are you questioning i mean seeing what you accomplished you're like i matched 90 percent, and i have dates and they're i'm mm -hmm. I'm out on the road. I I can make a go of this. When that happened and that massive wrench just got kind of thrown into that vision, mm -hmm. at that point, did you question? I mean, obviously, I know you say I have to get back on my feet and get a regular job, right. whatever, you know, but internally, did that kind of make you go, there's a sign like I shouldn't be doing this? Or did you kind of go like, no, I'm going to get on my feet and then I'm going to go do this full throttle? I'm, you know. My lady's not here anymore. Um, so <laughs> no, I was I was done with it. Oh, you were. So yeah, it, and I was like, I was screwed. I was like, I'll get a regular, I'll get a regular corporate job. Um, 
you know, this is nice. That's going to do it for a year. You know, I was going to shut it down anyway. Or so I thought. Uh, so it became a side thing. It became a, as my schedule permits, I go do shows. Um, then I started running my own open mic. I was like, well, that'll be my fix. I'll run my own open mic in Columbus. So I have my open mic every Tuesday. So that's my fix for shows and to be around that energy and space and people. Um, and when I can afford to, you know, come off on the weekend, I'll go do a show, come back home. Um, so I did that for a period of over two years. Um, and then same thing, uh, the slam started, my success in slam started increasing in terms of ratio, mm-hmm. how often I want. And then that equaled more demands for more shows and more performances, which more touring. And then I had a job, I was a manager at a Bob Evans, uh, never forget that. Uh, I was an assistant, man, assistant general manager at a Bob Evans and had had to tell the district manager that I did not do poetry anymore just to get hired. Wow. They wanted you to only dream about Bob Evans. Bob <laughs> Evans is your whole Girl, life. How did you get inside my mind? It's all I ever think about. <laughs> yeah. They didn't want you to do anything else but their restaurant. Wow. Um, no moonlighting, no, no, no hobbies, no passion. Very different what they teach you now. Like most companies tell employees that we want you to have extra curricular activities, make sure we're around the person. Yeah. But at the time it was like, no, you live, sleep, breathe, us. Um and I was at a table and he came by, the district manager came by and this two ladies saw me at a show and they were raving about me. Like, if you don't shut up, because <laughs> he's listening to all of this, like, please stop. Yeah. Please yeah. Stop. You're like, like you oh, don't understand. So this awesome. does not. Yeah. He's like, Oh really? You're like, this doesn't benefit me right now. <laughs> yeah, like, You should hear him. I just heard him. I just heard him last week. He was great. And he's like, really? Ah, crap. Um, yeah. So I ended up, Stepping away from that, uh, which in like retrospect was like one of the greatest things ever. My general manager actually came and snuck into my show and saw me. And he had a long talk with me and he was like, you're going to hate me now. You're going to appreciate this later. And he literally put me on a final write-up and uh, fired. He's like, I saw what you did on that microphone. You're you're simply doing the wrong thing. You're not you're not a lifetime restaurant manager. Wow. You're not a lifetime Bob Evans family member of the restaurant chain. Yeah, that's not your calling. Um, he's like I, I you know you're going to be mad, but you'll appreciate it later. So my manager name was Keith. Actually, I still need to tell him he was right. Uh, he literally fired. He's like, I'm going to let you go. I was like, Nah. But like, yeah. <laughs> um, and I just started doing more shows and never really missed a beat. Did shows once I am. Did more shows, one, you know, more and more fans and more events. Um, and next thing I knew, it was like, wow, this is a full-time job. Um, and then next same thing, next thing you know, it's been, you thought it was only three years, it's been four, you thought it was four, actually it was seven, you thought it was seven, it's been nine. And you go, holy crap, when did this become like a full-time career? This was not the plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, so now, like it's 2020, yeah, I haven't worked for another person since Jesus, two thousand something. That's incredible and beautiful. Yeah, because all of my Charlotte town was professional. Half my Arizona town was professional, so probably two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Wow, that's fantastic! Can you tell our listeners the poem that you won the World Slam Poetry Contest with twice? I mean, you've won it two different times, so two different poems, I would imagine. 
Uh, uh, this is gonna be awkward. Um, <laughs> one, I've actually won it four times. Four times? We need to update your Wikipedia, sir. Oh yeah, I, I don't ever touch any of that crap. Before. <laughs> I got to hire publicists. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I consider I myself a decent researcher. So. <laughs> oh no, no, yeah, I just, I never, I never post about something about I've won the individual world poetry slam, uh, a record four times. Um. Yeah, no one else has got it more than two. And I don't mathematically speak, I don't see anyone ever breaking that. But so they have a satellite. <laughs> um, I never recall any poem I've ever done and I won with because one has been a while ago. Uh, two, two of the times I won, I won what was called an improv piece. I, I, I preached out a piece on the spot. Wow. Um, so I won an improv poem uh, twice. Yeah, I, I'm glad I don't have a gun in my head. I, <laughs> I, I cannot think of of the exact piece or title. Um, That's okay. I'm, I won't hold you to that. I promise. Oh, no. about that. Yeah, but I won, I won four of them. There's plenty, there's plenty of them online. Uh, plenty of moments online. Um, I know one year I, I covered, uh, I made sure uh, I covered one family member, my mother, her husband, my dog, and me for the subject one year. I wrote poems about what was most important to me. Yeah. Uh, same thing. If someone told me you win four Iowa's titles in a different decade, I'm like, you're crazy. Um, that's been crazy. Uh, yeah, running the press has been crazy. I've always been small press. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like a lot, a lot of the things that have come out of it, um, TED Talks and yep. uh, working with the National Civil Rights Museum. I was just going to ask you, that was my follow-up to getting your statistics wrong about your winnings. I'm so sorry. No, no, but I was going to ask you about the experience with the TED Talks. How is the, how is the behind the scenes of that? How does it feel to be coming onto that kind of a platform with millions and millions and millions of viewers? And what's that process like? Um, it's actually very simple. It's, I mean, you're someone asked to be part of it. For me, I, I was invited. Um, I didn't submit. I was invited twice. Uh, they kind of told me what they want me to discuss or specifically in one case, they were very specific about what they wanted me to do. Um, but the other one, um, they're a little more open-minded in terms of like, you know, bring us something here that I, here's the subject uh, matter and the, the tone of our particular one. Um, another one, they're like, we want you to do this poem, no question that. Uh, you know, so you just keep yeah. your toes. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was a cool experience. It's very nice. Um, it's very nice and what it's become is amazing. Um, I wish, I hope more people actually are impacted by watching them, not just doing them now because it's cool or watching them now because it seems cool. Yeah. Right. I think authenticity is always a better way to lean. You know, I mean, it's like you, mm -hmm. you hope, especially in the arts, whatever people are bringing to the table, it's from an authentic place. Um, not because something's cool. Cause then I think it becomes uncool pretty fast. Um, may I ask you a few questions before yeah. we part today? Sure. What is something you would tell your, knowing what you know now, what's something you would tell your younger self? Oh, God. I know. Let's just, you know. Uh, <laughs> it depends on how young. Uh, go to college. Probably every version of my younger self, I would say go to college and get at least one degree, if not two. You're not missing anything at all. Uh, they isn't going to be there when you get out. Like literally, whatever it is, it's going to be there when you get out. Uh, go to college. Um, don't have financial debt, though. 
you know, loans, yeah. paper, whatever you got to do, but no, just, just get no loans, do everything else. Um, take more chances, stick with sports, you know, do not go to the Navy. That'd <laughs> be the big things, yeah. You know, ask them a question about my grandparents, why they were alive. Um, there's a lot about them I don't know because I never got a chance to ask them, so, you know. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, all of your advice has been incredible, but that is one that resonates with me for sure, because I feel like if we all took a little more time to slow down and ask our elders what they've learned over a long livelihood and what they Mm -hmm. could pass down and really, you know, entrench yourself in it, we might all be a little bit better. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a really valuable point. What do you tell yourself now? As you go through this journey, what it, what's the thing that you kind of remind yourself of? regularly or when you look in the mirror? Uh, it's all part of the process. Um, ride the waves as much as possible. You have good days, bad days, happy days, sad days, depressed days. Pause anytime you feel anger and ask yourself what you're actually angry at. Very big one. What is ticking me off about this moment um, compared to what I'm directing my energy towards? Oh, I think that's so valuable. I think that's um, so valuable. Yeah, and just just being able, you know, being willing to say no, which is funny. Like uh, one famous person I ever say, uh, William Shatner, said his biggest thing from life was saying yes to every opportunity. Um, I know another uh, person I heard speaking. They said their biggest thing was learning how to say no yeah. on a regular basis, not feel bad. So finding that balance of those two things, what's in your gut, good, what's not in your gut, you know, just shut it down. But even if it's excessive, it feels good. So, yeah, that'd be the biggest thing. Just it's all part of the process. Keep going. Um, focus on your life in 20 minute. I mean, sorry, 20 year increment. Um, and all of a sudden, the small problems stay small problems. Wow, that's yeah. fantastic. I'm going to start implementing that. I've never thought of it in in terms of time. You know what I mean? Of like looking yeah. on a bigger bird's eye scale at a block of time like that. Yeah, because another thing become real simple is ah, you know, the COVID situation. Ah, it's COVID. It's like it is going to pass. Things are never going to be the way they were, but you're going to survive it. Right. So if you know you're going to survive it, then maybe it's best to start looking at it from a certain perspective. Um, a certain level of understanding. Yeah, and that gives you some peace with that too. Like, I mean, I think mm-hmm. if you're looking at it from that perspective, you can kind of decompress a little bit, being like, okay, it's temporary. We're not sure how temporary, but we know that it's not going to be forever, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. What would you say have been your career highs and your career lows? What are your highest highs and your lowest lows? Um, every poem's its own high, I guess. Because you don't necessarily, uh, I believe some people have spoken to and some people have spoken through. Mm. So I've tried to find it for years, but I'm one of the spoken through people. Uh, yeah, I've, I've come to, uh, I think my high is just being able to appreciate what that does, what that means uh, in terms of being selected to share a message of all the vessels on this planet to be used, for you to be used. For the blessing in that. Um, speaking, uh, being commissioned to write a poem for the National Civil Rights Freedom Awards. I'm sorry, Freedom Awards for the National Civil Rights Museum. Um, that would be a high for me uh, in terms of 
you know, Jesse Jackson, Dr. Bernice King, Huma Sakela, uh, just these amazing um, yes, um, good company activists, yeah, <laughs> uh, amazing activists, uh, John Legend, um, uh, shoot, her name just literally goes away. See, Gloria Steinem. Yeah. Um, it is wonderful individuals, and then the women who run the Civil Rights Museum believing in me enough to go, hey, we want you to write something that's going to encapsulate this moment that becomes a permanent part of our archives. Um, for the 45th or 50th uh, memorial anniversary of the assassination of MLK, uh, being asked to give the keynote speech as a poem on behalf of the National Civil Rights Museum at the Civil Rights Museum, surrounded by uh, all these people from that era who survived um, all sitting or, or standing and being around and being asked to be that voice. Uh, that was one of the most humbling experiences ever. Uh, it taught me quickly to realize the importance of uh, discussion on race, but also the importance of my work being a shining example. Um, so that taught me a lot. Uh, yeah, and then like the first time I was able to buy my food or like buy my mom and her husband a dinner and like poetry paid for that. Yeah. Um, I think that was how like, the idea of something I created. I've never been good with my hands. I can't draw to save my life. I can't fix a sink. I cannot change your brake pads or change the oil. <laughs> um, but the idea that I wrote a poem, so something that was in my heart or my head, that I put on a piece of paper, and in that piece of paper, someone else read it and said, I'll pay you this much. Come say it that way to other people. Um, yeah, for that people money that I was able to feed my family with just was like a really cool like wow like I just fed you guys off poetry. Yeah. You know, how crazy is that? Back to the kid who was doing the speech contest and ignoring poetry and all that stuff. Like how full circle is it? Um yeah, you know, to try to do right by that kid who yeah. you know, stood up for himself back then. And also uh, Lowe's, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and also what's so incredible about these beautiful highs you've just shared is that it's also left for generations to come. Your words yeah. are coming from your heart and from your mind, but it's not only something that is literally put paying for something, but it will also be affecting some life mm -hmm. long after you and I are gone. You know what I right. mean? Someone will pick yeah. up those words and I... I just think that's one of the most beautiful and incredible aspects of art is that next to children, I believe it's, you know, what we really leave behind. Mm. You know, which is incredible because yeah. you can work. Yeah. And this is not me downplaying anybody's career with a corporate job right. or a military, but like you can work day in and day out. And obviously through your children, you leave a piece of yourself and hopefully guide them to be good people and change the world mm. too with their presence. But with art you have the experience with your children, but then you have this other entity that is mm -hmm. beyond DNA that will live on, yeah. you know, which is just amazing. I, so that's, I mean, to me, along with all your highs, I, how incredible that you've had these experiences that have also left this great work behind. Oh, yeah. Um, lows would be, I don't know, I mean, it's, you think lows are lows until you get past it and you look back and realize it wasn't necessarily that bad a thing. Um, most of the lows, in terms of my art, uh, me, it's probably just not writing something properly. Uh, 
definitely relationship choices, you know, touring and then realizing that you need to consider the other person in the tour uh, and not always having done that. So that was a big thing. Mm. That really, really considering the other person. Um, yeah, but as far as like a specific low, no, there was no uh, set thing to happen. It's just been typical. Everybody has you know, bad days. Yeah. The, the, well, I think that's pretty great. <laughs> I mean, it could be a lot worse, don't you think? <laughs> it's yeah, really great yeah, yeah. to say life is, you know, the pockets of life that everyone goes through are my lows, which I think is wonderful. Um, I have one more question for you. Yeah. What do you define as success and how has that word changed over your career and over your life? Um, did you ever look at one hmm. being or entity or thing and think I want to do, or I want to do or be that that's successful and engaging in this career of the arts? Um, has that def changed for you? Oh, definitely. I used to want a lot of things until reality hit. Uh, success for me now is, I think Whoopi Goldberg is credited with the quote, um, there's a price to pay for individuality uh, or being an individual. And I used to not understand that. The older I get, the more I understand it. Our systems are put in place to keep you as a cog in the machine. Mm -hmm. And that's not, it's not a bad thing. It's just the way things are. Like if you look at America as a machine, it needs all those, we're all cogs. If there's a broken cog or a cog out of place, you become a problem. Um, so, from that perspective, then certain things just aren't supposed to be for you because they don't fit. So like an artistic life doesn't fit. Call in the machine. The machine has no need for art. Uh, the machine has need to just, you get up, go to work, you go to bed to have enough rest to go work the next day. You do this long enough until you retire. Yeah. You never take the vacation and do all the things you said you're gonna do because you're retired and tired and broke. Mm -hmm. You die, your kids pick up your debt and we repeat the process. Um, that's the way. So success for me was a this size house, this many cars, this stock portfolio. Now success is whatever you have it being paid for and you're working at something that you're happy doing. You know, you pay your bills and you're happy to get up and you're happy when you come home. And everyone has sucky days, but overall you're generally happy. Uh, because I know too many people who make really good money working for companies that they abhor, like they hate, literally, I have friends that hate their job, um, but also in a position where they can't leave their job. Yeah, that's that's all too common, I believe. Yeah. Um, so success for me used to be, oh, I'll, I'll get a degree and do this, this, and this, and a master's, and I'll do this. And it's like, well, yeah, there's no such thing as job security anymore in America. That's a myth. The American dream is a myth in and of itself. So it became a kind of define it for yourself thing. So for me now, it's, I'm also transitioning. Like I'm doing poetry still, and that still pays the bills. Knock on wood, you know, COVID notwithstanding. Um, but I also am working on writing, becoming a screenwriter, a voice actor, um, and then also just an actor. That's uh, a different set of muscles in terms of writing and work. Emmy nominated, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that part is accurate. <laughs> this man is multifaceted and very talented in a number of directions. Thank you. Um, but today, you know, whenever we have these conversations and we have 
beautiful, interesting guests like yourself. I love asking the life story because I think it's so important. People can see the accolades and they can see the trophies and they can see the awards, Mm -hmm. but it's so important to understand that people take shifts and pivots and halts and goes. Mm -hmm. And there's no really such thing when you choose this life of just going A to B. I don't think. Right. And for your friends that you were discussing of like, you know, you have that very streamlined direction of here's the paycheck you're going to make. Here's the, Mm. you know, benefits you get. And and then Mm. they come home and they hate it's eating them alive on the inside. And then you speak with artists who are finding joy in expression. Right. And and creating and shaping and creating a dialogue about current events and the world and everything that is coming from authenticity and sincere places. Mm -hmm. And I find that often there's this happiness that comes with the authenticity, unlike the Mm -hmm. people working for the corporate gig. But I don't Mm -hmm. think there's ever much discussion on, it's never the same story. You know, every single person finds this place through the journey that they've taken. And, And in your instance, it's been so interesting to hear that it's been on so many levels cyclical, but then mm. there's been this through line of finding balance, which you've mentioned a number of times. Mm. And you're at this mm. place now where, you know, I my last question of the day is what's next for Ed Mabry? Like, where's, where are the dreams and the passions now? Is it going to transition a little to more writing or acting? Or are we just going to keep... And all of it is... There's no wrong answer, obviously. But it's like, where does your heart and mind lead you now? Um Definitely both. I moved to Los Angeles for screenwriting and become a voice actor and a uh, movie and TV actor. Um, I've been wanting to do that for 20 years. I was doing theater before poetry. We kind of just skipped that whole part. Um, I was doing theater before poetry. Uh, And apparently I'm very slow on the upswing on catching hints. You know, so uh, my particular belief system, you know, I pray to my God, you know, God, if you show me, you know, it's like the old, it's the famous joke. Um, a guy prayed every day. He went to a, he went to a cave and he stood in front of the cave and he said, you know, I want to play. I want to win. Uh, I'm sorry. He was on the ground. He said, I want to go to the mountain and I'm going to pray to hit the lottery. And it, said, it takes a long time to get there. You have to walk up the mountain and do all this stuff to get there. And he did all this stuff, and finally he got all the way to the top, goes to this cave where God's voice can be heard. And he yells into the cave, uh, I have a request. And the voice comes back, what do you want? He says, I want to hit the lottery. And the voice comes back, then you've got to play the numbers. <laughs> um, and he's like, oh. <laughs> like, <laughs> I spent this whole year working my way to get up this mountain. I could have been playing. Uh, which is a very short version, but yeah, I would get the whole, you know, oh, your voice is so deep. You sound like Isaac Hayes and Dan Joe Jones. Thank you very much. You sound like so-and-so and so-and-so. Thank you very much. Have you ever thought about doing voiceover work? Sure. Thank you very much. And this is my Ohio time. And I, I mean, I was grateful for the, the compliments, but also kind of brushed them off because I got tired of hearing them. Uh, because no one... I, I was kind of like, what's the point? No one that lives here has the connections to get me to that other thing. Right. So I think about the other thing. Right. Why um, put that energy? I would get uh I would get oh you're right. right. I would get the whole of uh, hey when I hear you perform your poems, I can see them in my head like a small movie. Um and I've never experienced that before, but I, I can see them in my head like a small movie. You should maybe consider doing something with that poem. 
okay, yeah, if I had a dollar every time I heard that. And then I'd go home and pray, God, if it's meant for me to go to Los Angeles and be a screenwriter or an actor, give me a sign. And then the next week I would go to do a show. And someone will go, hey, that poem you did, I could see it in my head like a movie. You know, you should think about that. I'm like, yeah, whatever. God, if you please <laughs> give me. Yeah. And it took like maybe about 18 years. <laughs> you know, not very long, like 18 years of me doing that. And then finally, I wrote something that a friend of mine used for their thesis argument for their masters. And they proved that I had created a new poetry form. I got nothing for it, but, you know, cool, great. <laughs> um, and then someone else took it and turned that into, I think, a play that got commissioned and they got like a, a big grant for it, $100,000, all kind of crazy stuff. And I was like, what the hell? Like, I could do that. Like, I could have written that. And I was like, oh, but I, I did write that. Yeah. It's not that I could write it. I, I did. <laughs> I wrote the template for them to do what they did. I've already done it. I could. Oh, I wonder what else. And then literally one day I just, it was kind of a beautiful mind movie. Yeah. <laughs> just all these strings and stuff stuck to walls. And I looked at my poems and I was like, oh, wow, I've been patting myself on the back for uh, Kings of New York and turned it into a three-minute poem and, and pat myself on the back for that. I was like, that's great. But you actually were supposed to write Kings of New York. Yeah, interesting, you know? yeah. Like the fact that you shrunk it. Yeah, I wrote a... Uh, I wrote a libretto and that did me very well in, in and out of the slam. Which is incredible. I, I watched that on YouTube and I think everybody should go oh, check you. it out. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's been an academic peer review uh, in multiple schools as part of literary journals mm -hmm. and reviews and stuff. It was uh, it's what got me in my um, uh, my pushcart nomination came from that. Um, so a friend of mine wrote a libretto. Uh, well, a, an orchestra where they live said, could you do that? And they say, yeah, they say, great, we're going to pay you money, write a libretto and write an write a opera for our orchestra to play. Yeah. And I was like, how'd you pull that off? They said, I read, I read what you did. And I was like, oh. Oh, you mean I'm the one who sold you on this idea. <laughs> so you took the three-minute thing I did and turned it into a two-hour focus. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I finally decided to, I was like, let me, let me go ahead. Yeah, let me take the hint. And so last May, not this May, May of 2019 uh, or April, I moved. I came out of here. I looked for a place. I found a spot. I applied. I got approved for down the deposit. Literally didn't tell anybody about it until I was leaving. I, my roommate didn't know until like the day before I was leaving. Like, you're packing a lot of stuff. Well, I'm just cleaning. I'm just cleaning. <laughs> just packing and cleaning. Like, well, someone just came and took your car. Yeah, yeah I'm just cleaning. <laughs> Why didn't you? Why'd um, you keep it a secret? Uh, I didn't want anyone to talk me out of it. And I didn't want to give any, I didn't want to give myself an excuse to get someone to talk me out of it. Got it. Um, I wanted to, you're like, I'm in full steam ahead. I'm going to commit to this and keep my eyes. Forward. Yeah. I'm going to commit and I'm going to do it. Cause one of the things you talk about the highs and lows of success, what I've learned is more you put something out into the universe, you don't wait for it to happen, put it out there. And you act as if the answer is yes. And you move towards that thing. Mm. And then you'll get it. You know, you don't say I want to lose weight and keep eating what you're eating. I want to lose weight. And then you start exercising a little bit you can and change your diet a little bit you can. And a year from now, you're a different person. Um, I'm going to move to Los Angeles was okay. Well, it's always going to be expensive. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to take money. Looking back, do I think differently because of COVID? Of course, but no one could have predicted what happened. Um, 
but I wouldn't change a thing as far as how it happened because I had the money and I kept saying, I need this much money to do it. And the universe kept giving me exactly that much money. Yeah. It would not give me more. It would not give me less. It gave me exactly to the dime what I needed for every step along the way. I'm taking some classes right now online through Sundance, a collab institute for screenwriting and stuff. And I applied and I said, why am I applying? I can't afford to go. If I get it, I can't afford it. Um, and someone said, no, apply and see if you get in because they don't, they don't accept everybody. They, right. So it's very picky. At the very least, you'll know if you got in. So I got accepted for TV writing and for screenwriting. I was like, holy <laughs> crap, great. But I only got a partial scholarship. I'm like, okay, well, that sucks. That's like a big tease. And I was like, wait a minute. The universe wouldn't offer me this without a means to do it. Right. Um, look around your apartment. You have money sitting here. Uh, because I also own a, I own a vintage goods company, which I know sounds a lot. So I sell jewelry that I, I uh, refurbish and repurpose vintage jewelry. And I've got bags of them been sitting here for a year Yeah. because I didn't come out here for that purpose. So I crack open those bags and I clean and I start going through stuff. And I go, you know what? For the month of June, I'll do a jewelry sale every Monday online for 30, 45 minutes tops. I don't want to embarrass myself to sit in here begging. I'll put a table out. And lo and behold, I didn't have a table. Uh, some people on my floor moved and left the LA thing. They leave wonderful furniture right. down, like moving it <laughs> down seven stories. So this beautiful table that like whoever wants it. So I moved the table in my apartment. Um, I lay out a, a, a nice tablecloth. I lay the jury out. I go online and go, Hey guys, I'm going live for 30 minutes on Monday. And, um, I got enough that Monday to pay my, uh, they split my payments into payments for the classes yeah um i got enough that monday to pay for my first installment like 30 minutes before it was due wow um i said that's great you know i'll see what happens next monday if it doesn't happen screw it it doesn't happen i said but hopefully i'll sell enough stuff to where over the, of the next three months eight week course like so every few weeks we have to make paint i'll do this every week and hopefully i'll get enough money to you know at least knock the edge off and try to get some help tomorrow and every monday i make exactly almost like within a $10 mark of what the next payment wow. is. Yeah. You, yeah. you made, so, you set the yeah, intention, it, you followed the intention and you said, I'll make this work. Mm -hmm. And literally in through your own work, the gifts came through like, you know what I mean? With your intention yeah. and with your yeah, work ethic yeah. and with your all, I will figure this out. Just like you said, if you're, you know, the universe has already said yes. So now you have the permission to go and make it happen. And you did. And everyone and right. that abundance yeah. came to you in exactly the amounts you needed to make the goal transpire, which is incredible. Yeah. So that's that's the that's the what's next is uh, finish these classes. I've already written a couple of screenplays. Uh, the forms are actually treatments or outlines for screenplays. They're at least the bones of a screenplay. So I'm going back through poems and going, this one is, this one is not, this one is, this one is not. So same thing. I'm kind of, I joke and tell people all the time, I'm really not thinking about extra blessings in my life. If I could just fulfill and manifest the ones I have already on hold, you know, like I could never come up with a new idea for a poem and still probably die not having read every, every poem I'm supposed to write. You know, I went to workshops. I went to a week-long yeah. retreat where I had a whole notebook full of poems I'm supposed to write. And then a year later, I'll find that notebook and I haven't touched it yet. Like, oh, okay, so that's for right. 10 years from now when I'm just sitting in front of a typewriter, 
I'll write that book. I'll write those poems. Same thing. I have poems like, oh, well, that's a movie. Oh, well, that's an opera. Well, that's a play. Okay, well, never mind. I'm brainstorming the new things at this point in my life. I'm really going back and reflecting with new eyes, right. looking at the work and going, what was I really being shown with this work? Not what I did with it, but what was I being shown? And then trying to turn those works, kind of open the door and let them be the thing they were meant to be in the first place. <laughs> well, I personally can't wait to see what this journey leads to because I have a feeling I'll be going, hey, Ed, can we have you back on now that your film's the number one? Will you come hang out with the... I, for everybody that's listening, I unintentionally dressed like a gypsy fortune teller today and I have never met Ed before and we do these, <laughs> these discussions over Zoom and he has this incredible infectious smile and he's so brilliant and intelligent and I'm sitting here in awe of him looking like a crazy lady, like I'm going to give him his fortune. So I, my fortune for you is I think I'm going to be calling sooner than later going, so that's screenplay huh that turned out just fine can we talk about that film process that'll probably be happening sooner than later i will gladly come back from your lips to the university i will take all that i uh amen you know <laughs> no thing stopping us is us i mean minus the current covid yes black lives matter of course all day every day twice on sunday yes. and, and racism and bigotry and transphobia homophobia um systemic racism and oppression and all these things we need to tear apart defund, police and all that but on a personal level the biggest thing that hinders us in our lives is usually ourselves. You know, we, we, we create our own prison before anyone else creates one for us. Um, yeah, so I, I will take everything you say and, and hopefully and yeah, try to my best to manifest it. Which is funny, I'm going to do another interview. And what's funny is that interview, the young man who's interviewing me for that one tried to come up with a subject and he messaged me while we're talking. He said, I want to discuss uh, the spiritual aspect of why we write. So I'm like, of course, I'm having this conversation to flow right into that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's all things you want to talk about. Um, I, no, so thank you. Now, I'll definitely come back. I, I would be excited to come back and say, hey, I've got to do your show because this great thing happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm just going to say when, and I look forward to it. Thank you. So you have yourself an incredible day, Ed. Oh, really quickly, just for our listeners' sake, from your incredible sure. voiceover voice, could you tell us where <laughs> people should be finding you and following you? Sure. My name is Ed Mabry. It's E-D. Uh, last is M as in Michael, A as in Apple, B as in Boy, R as in Roger, E as in Elephant, Y as in Yo-Yo. And you can find me. I'm stalker-friendly. Everything's my name online. <laughs> uh, so Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, if you follow me on Facebook, I'm probably not going to speak because Facebook is just weird these days. Uh, Twitter, I'm learning to be more Twitterified. Uh, Instagram is my most communicative space. That's my favorite, too. Yeah, uh, Instagram is the best way. But uh, yeah, I don't see my face on it more than likely it's me. Um, I try to keep trolls to them, hopefully. Well, I will make sure that we have all those links dedicated so that everybody can find awesome. you as easily as possible. And I look forward to when you come back with your film and or whatever you create at the next level when you share it with us. And then uh, in the meantime, I wish you good health. And I'm so thankful you came on today. I hope we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. 
All right, y'all. Today's episode is brought to you by Gray Dog Guitars, located at 141 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Gray Dog Guitars is an authorized tailor, Gretsch, Guild, and Reverend dealer with a friendly, knowledgeable staff and a welcoming environment. Whatever you are looking for, whether to buy, sell, or trade, Gray Dog Guitars has you covered. So stop by today and check out their great selection of new, used, and vintage gear and check them out at www.graydogguitars.com. Thank you for listening to The Creative Convergence, coming to you from Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Are you a professional in the arts and would like to share your story with us or a company that would like to advertise with us? Shoot us an email at contact at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Help support the arts by becoming a Raven Productions member. Get your perk card and be the first to know about all of our upcoming promotions, events, and online programming. Your membership will directly support the arts programs in our schools. Sign up today at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Until next time, be safe and enjoy the journey.